Thank you, worship team. So open the Word of God, please, to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and I think, especially as we get close to Christmas, when you think of Luke chapter 2, at least when I think of Luke chapter 2, I'm thinking about the Christmas passage, the first part of the chapter, in which we have the actual description of the birth of Christ in Bethlehem with Mary and Joseph in the stable and the manger and the shepherds. But I'm thinking about a different portion of Luke chapter 2 today, one that kind of, uh, I think, is overlooked at times. And we're going to look at verses 22 through 38 of Luke chapter 2. And we're going to see that the fact that Jesus is the Christ was confirmed by prophets in the temple in Jerusalem when Jesus is just an infant. And that's really important because, as you probably know, Christ is not Jesus' last name, as in Joseph Christ and Mary Christ, virgin conception, nine months later, virgin birth, and Jesus Christ. Christ is not like McCoy for me or Skinner for you guys. It's a title. It's one of his most important titles. It's an affirmation of who he is. And the Christ literally is the one chosen by God the Father to be the Savior. It's the anointed one, the one anointed by God the Father, Psalm 2, to be the exclusive issue and the exclusive issuer of eternal life. And so we read passages, uh, Dustin, like 1 John 5, 1, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. That's how important this title is, believing that he's the one who fulfills that job description, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Christ, the anointed one. The Gospel of John, its key statement says, Many other signs Jesus also did, which are not written in this book. I'm not trying to tell you everything I could tell you about the Lord Jesus, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing you would have life in his name. So we're going to emphasize this overlooked passage, at least in my opinion. I think I've only taught it a few times over the years, but it's really a neat one where we have a, a male prophet and a female prophet prophet someone who receives direct information from God directly propositional truth so they're telling you what God the father says not my interpretation of what God the father says in the scripture but the prophets confirm Jesus to be the Christ let's pray for our teachability this morning as we come to this portion of God's word and uh, as is our custom let's pray for our Military and our peace officers, our firefighters, local, statewide, national, and international. And also, let's pray we'll be teachable to this point. Um, Smell, don't forget our Wow Wednesday scheduled for this Wednesday night. Uh, last week, I told you we're going to look at Ken Wanzer today. We've been talking about uh, rumors about some of these TBF men that are actually true. But I don't like rumors, so we're going to call these three amazing facts about Ken Wanzer. Okay, number three, this is in order of importance. Ken Wanzer is the only person in the English-speaking world who actually knows and how to spell the name Ken correctly. I just stepped on that, but he's the only one who knows how to spell it right. K-Y-N-N is the way you spell it, Ben. It's not K-E-N. They've all, everybody else has it wrong, okay? Number two, I'll try to read this one better. Ken's personality is so powerful. When he eats at Burger King, he often orders a Big Mac. Now, Dr. Geisher would call that a big category mistake. But somehow, his personality is so powerful, 
even at Burger King, they always hand him one in less than 60 seconds. <laughs> they just make it, can make stuff happen, okay? And the number one, Carol gave me a hundred of them, but I just reduced them down to three, uh, just so you know. Ken never stubs his toes, but his toes sometimes accidentally destroy chair legs, bare frames, and sidewalks. I should probably read those before we actually do this. Okay, now let me show you one more amazing fact that didn't make the list. Where is Ken when they t- when Carol took that picture? Yeah, how do you know that? How do you know that? Now here's what you didn't notice. Ken is so famous. New Yorkers, not tourists, New Yorkers are taking his picture. See the guy there? I mean, he's just world world famous. I mean, we don't appreciate him enough. I'm telling you. All right, we're going to look at Luke 2, 22 through 38. We're going to see that the fact that Jesus is the Christ was confirmed by prophets receiving direct revelation from God the Father when Jesus was still an infant, and it was done in the temple complex where the whole religious organization uh, is doing its thing. So it's not like they didn't have enough information to know. Passage breaks down like this. It's a big passage with two unequal halves, you might say, two parts. First, we're going to see the presentation, according to the Old Testament law, of the infant Jesus at the temple. And then we're going to focus on prophetic proclamations by Simeon and Anna. These are prophets that are going to confirm Jesus is the Christ. Let's look at that first part there, verses 22 through 24. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. And when the days for their purification, 40 days after the birth in Bethlehem, they travel six miles north to Jerusalem. When the days for their purification, according to the Old Testament law of Moses, was completed, they, Joseph and Mary, brought him, 40-day-old in his humanity, Jesus Christ, up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem because it's on top of a mountain. It's higher than the other area there. To present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of Moses, every firstborn male, this was a ritual under the Old Testament law for the Old Testament people of God, to celebrate and also to commemorate and also to offer up a trespass offering when their first male son was born because it would be through him legally that family would be continued. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy, I mean special, unique to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord in Leviticus chapter 5, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So they offered up animal sacrifices according to the Old Testament law. Joseph and Mary were not perfect, Connie, but they were righteous believers who lived under the Old Testament law. Even as our Lord Jesus lived under the Old Testament law as a good Old Testament Jew, look at Galatians chapter 4. Now Ron's our local expert on the book of Galatians, but I will a passage here that's always this is one of those passages I think is really pretty pretty cool. Doesn't get read often enough if I can find it. Galatians four four. I always like it when the chapter and the number is the same, you know. Galatians four four. But when the fullness of time came, after thousands of years of prophecy that really narrowed down who Jesus was going to be, God the Father sent forth his son, born of a woman as far as his humanity, born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law, under the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? Nobody keeps it. Everybody's a sinner. Nobody's even able to try to save themselves the way God sees it. 
Instead, we need a Savior who would keep the law for us and die and pay our sin debt for us, that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, do you realize that Sean is as much a son as James or uh, Janice as much a son legally as Steve? Because only sons were heirs in that culture. So when he's stressing your sonship, if you're a female, he's stressing your inheritance rights as a believer. So that's just a little nuance you want to be aware of. Now, I want you to notice something. Go back to Luke chapter 2. In order to offer up these sacrifices, they had to go where? To the temple complex in Jerusalem. Uh, It's not specifically mentioned, but understood. But if you drop down to verse 27, we're going to see Simeon come into the temple right in connection with the family being there for this ceremony we just read about. And then also um, verse 37, as we move from Simeon, the first prophet, to Anna, the second prophet, uh, we're told that she was a widow to the age of 84, and she never left the temple. Now, for me, when I hear somebody in the temple, I tend to think inside the building, but that's not true at all. In fact, the Greek text helps to narrow that down or, or broaden it for us, I guess I should say. So let's look at some pictures. This is, of course, a model of the temple. But there's actually a Greek word, naos, that refers to the building as opposed to anything else related to the temple. There's another word, heron, which refers to everything, everything inside the overall complex. In fact, even the whole temple mount itself would be part of the heron. So when we're talking about these people in the temple, we don't mean they're in the building. Only priests could go in the building, right? Now, why is the temple so important? Well, go there now, Jack, and I hope you get to go someday. Sooner the better. Uh, you're not going to see the second temple. What are you going to see? See the Dome of the Rock. But I always love this, uh, National Geographic. God bless them. You know, sometimes they get stuff right. You know, this is what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. This is what that same rectangle, uh, the platform, the temple platform it's called, looks like today. Now what's that? Dome of the Rock. Uh, Muhammad lived from 570 to 632 AD. By 699, just shortly after he died, the Muslim armies had conquered Israel and built that, not as a mosque. The mosque is here, south of that. It's not a mosque. It's a commemorative building. It's really beautiful. That celebrates what? The victory of Islam over Christianity and Judaism. That's the point of the building. Okay, And they have a perfect right to do that. They um, conquered the area. But that's what that is. So don't think of that as a place of worship. The place of worship is due south, still on the Temple Mount. But let's think about other things. Let's think about the Western Wall. Since we're in the Temple Complex, that's a sign somebody took on the last trip. Maybe Carol, if I remember right. And this is that picture. You know, Homer took this in 06 when he rented a helicopter, hung off the, the bottom of the helicopter, and took aerial pictures for us. But what's that? That's where the Temple would have been in Jesus' day. Uh, so this is north, south, east, west. What's that? That's what we call the Western Wall, right? Let's think about the Western Wall. Some of you may call it the Wailing Wall, right? There's the Wailing Wall. It's big, and it goes as far down below the pavement today as it does above it nowadays. There's where the temple would have been. That's where the Dome of Rock is right now. There's another shot of it. So what's the big deal about the Western Wall anyway? Well, this is a, another model of the temple in Jesus' day, and we're looking at it from a different angle. But the Western Wall 
what you're seeing today, right in the picture we just showed you, let's put that one there. What you're looking at right there in Jesus' day would have been part of the wall around the temple complex itself. So you got a physical artifact from 2,000 years ago that is especially important for a lot of different reasons. So, boom, that part of the wall there. Now, that's my second favorite picture of the Western Wall. Uh, we got Sue and Kitty and some tall guy who just happened to be... He's a male, used to be a formal male model, former male model many years ago, and he still likes to get in pictures, you know. What do you call that when you kind of force your way into pictures? Photobomb? Yeah, so Ron photobomb Kitty, and so you got the thorn between the two roses. But that's actually my favorite picture, because that's, that's me in 2006 at the Western Wall. Now here's, this is why you come to church on Sundays. Last week, Historians found an ancient picture of six ancient people, get the word ancient, breaking ground for the Western Wall. You want to see this? And the weird thing is they found the picture in my office. So, I mean, Ethan, think about that. This is a picture of people breaking ground for the Western Wall. And they found the picture in my office. Yeah. 1990, Brad Blystone. Bobby Dudley, but we're not on good speaking terms, so I call her Robert. <laughs> That's Homer Cox. He's the only one doing any work, which is about the way it is around here. There's Joanne Brennan. She went to Israel with us uh, last May. There's Bill Dickinson, the George Washington of TBF, in my opinion. And there's some obscure preacher nobody's ever heard of. But uh, I used to have a full head of hair there. You see that? Okay, let's look at the most important part of this passage for us today. Let's look at verse 25 through 38, prophetic proclamations. This is God speaking directly through these two people and saying, this is him. This is the one I've been promising from day one. As early as Genesis 3, we're told God's going to send a a person who's going to crush Satan's head. Okay, that's how far this goes back. It goes back to the very origins of the whole deal. And, uh, yeah, let's look at verse... Whoops, let's look at uh, the prophet Simeon introduced. Look at verse 25 and 26. And there was a man in Jerusalem at the same time that Mary and Joseph had brought 40-day-old baby Jesus from Bethlehem to Jerusalem for the ceremony, whose name was Simeon. That's the male prophet we're looking at today. And this man was righteous and devout, not perfectly sinless, but it was a righteous believer and look what, what his faith is. Looking for. Hope is faith directed forward for the consolation or the deliverance of Israel through a deliverer who's going to be the Christ. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, not just generally as walking in the Spirit, but in a direct kind of, this is a capital P prophet, when he speaks with that unction, he does no wrong, doctrinally or morally. This is a prophet. And watch this, verse 26. It had been revealed by God to this guy Simeon, through the Holy Spirit, that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Christ. Big deal. That's just his last name, right? No, the one that has been promised to be the Lamb of God, the one who will be the issue and issue of eternal life. He's going to get to see him before he dies. And we're not told how old he is as uh, contrast the, the female prophet we're going to see is 84 years old. But I'm assuming he's probably fairly old as well here, okay? So why is all this so important? Well, you've got to put it in biblical context. The Bible's a big book, 
but it only has two parts, right? And I know you can memorize at least 26 things in a row, in order, because you know the alphabet, right? So two is easy. The Old Testament's all about how God's going to get to Christ here. New Testament's all about what he did and what he's going to do when he comes back. One major premise in the Old Testament is what? Everybody sins, everybody dies. What's the promise? Not the premise, the promise. God's going to send a Savior. God's going to send the Christ. Okay? Uh, what happens between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Yeah. The, the fancy term is the incarnation, but let's just say the advent of Christ, the virgin conception, virgin birth, perfect righteous life, substitutionary atoning sacrifice, literal body, supernatural resurrection, which validates the saving virtue of his death and the ascension. Okay? And the New Testament has one major premise. What is it? Jesus is the Christ, and he was alive even though they killed him, but he died for our sins, and that's why he permitted that, and he's coming back. So we're looking at Old Testament believers, because Luke 2 is happening before the death of Christ, correct? So even though that's a New Testament book, it's in an Old Testament setting, so they're under the Old Testament law and taking care of business according to Leviticus 5, right, on this trip. And again, this is our kind of a baseline description of what I think is the most important title for Christ, Lord Jesus Christ. Lord corresponds to the Old Testament word for God. Jesus means God's Savior, and Christ means Savior. So it's kind of like you can't miss it if you just look at what God says about him. Let's look at some verses. Look at what Jesus says about himself as the Christ in Luke 24. Luke 24 is after the resurrection. On the day of the resurrection, walking to the road of Emmaus, to Emmaus, which is a town out about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. The resurrected Christ is walking with guys who are whining about the fact, we thought Jesus was the Messiah and they killed him. But some people are saying he rose from the dead. And in fact, uh, the resurrected Christ is talking with them and interacting with them, and he's going to open their eyes in a minute. But he says uh, to them in verse 25, Luke 24, verse 25. Luke 24, last chapter, verse 25. He said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe. And all the prophets had spoken. They didn't just speak about the death of the Messiah, but him coming back alive after he'd been killed as the lamb. Isaiah 53 is very clear about that. Jesus says, was it not necessary for the Christ? Saying, I'm the Christ. And that was the plan all along. Come as a lamb, then come as a lion. To die for redemption, and then eventually to rule the world undeniably, supernaturally, visibly. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things as the Lamb of God and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, all the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in the Old Testament scriptures. Wow, man, I would have liked to have been there for that. Here's one nobody ever reads, but it's incredible. Look at Acts 26. Now, several of us, including Dustin and Carol and Debbie, had the privilege of being in Caesarea, the Roman capital of the region at the time of Jesus and the time of Paul. But look at Acts 26. This is Paul preaching the gospel before King Agrippa in Caesarea, Israel. And we'll give you just the short version here. Look at Acts 26. Look at verse 6 through 8. Paul says, Now I'm standing on trial for the hope of the promise that God was going to send a Savior? You're going to, you want to arrest me and kill me because I'm saying that was fulfilled by Jesus? 
The promise made by God the Father to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the whole line of Israel. The promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain. As Paul says, they, they hope they're going to impress the Messiah by being good Jews, and that wasn't the point at all, Romans 9. As they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O King Agrippa, I'm being accused by the Jewish authorities. And then he starts by saying, Why is it considered incredible among you folks if God does raise the dead? And then drop down to verse 18. Paul talks about his conversion, him seeing the risen Christ. And Christ told him, Hey, I'm going to send you the Gentiles. I'm going to send you, Paul, to the Gentiles primarily. Verse 18, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the domain of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. I hear people who should know better saying, Jesus never taught salvation by faith. Have you read John 3, 16 lately? You heard of that one? How about this one? He's saying... Get the word out to the Gentiles, because even they, those dirty dog Gentiles who don't obey the law, can be sanctified positionally by faith in me. Go back to Luke 2. This is cool stuff, man, in this passage that doesn't get read often enough, in my opinion, or, or, or preached often enough. Okay, let's look at Simeon's first prophecy. He's been introduced now. Let's read verse 27 through 32, and we'll see. Joseph and Mary's reaction to this prophecy in verse 33. Look at verse 27. We're back in Luke chapter 2. And he, that is Simeon the prophet, came in the spirit into the temple complex, not the building. It just happens to bump into Joseph, Mary, and Jesus. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to carry out for them the custom of the law, that Simeon took 40-day-old baby Jesus, infant Jesus, into his arms, blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you're releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. I'm ready to die now. I've seen the Christ, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That's a real cool deal. It's called, this is the technical term, is metonymy, effect for cause. In Genesis, Rebecca is told, two nations are in your womb. That's got to be one of those Bible mistakes, right? Two nations are in your womb? How can you have nations? I mean, it's hard to carry twins much or triplets, much less two nations. That's the effect put for cause. You've got Jacob and Esau in her stomach, but those would be the source of two nations, right? So that's called metonymy uh, effect for cause. I've seen your salvation. I've seen the Savior who's going to affect salvation. It's going to be the issue in the issue of eternal life to everyone who believes, who gives salvation to all who believe. So my eyes have seen uh, the, what you've said. I'm, I'm ready to die now. I've seen your, your Savior, the Christ. I've seen the one who will affect salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation of the Gentiles. That's no big deal to us. We've got 2,000 years of church history to get used to the fact that God loves Gentiles as much as Jews. But that was a shocker to Old Testament Jews and first century Jews on the other side of the cross. All peoples, not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles, and certainly the glory of your people Israel. And his father and his mother, Jesus' father and mother, Joseph and Mary, were amazed. This wasn't the first time they'd had this kind of input, but it's still amazing. Somebody they've never seen before knows exactly what's going on at the things which were being said about him. And I, I love that. Uh, this guy is told, you won't die till you see the Christ. And you won't see the whole thing. 
But he sees Jesus in infant form, and the Holy Spirit says, that's the one, that's that's the one, that's the one we've been promising for thousands of years, and uh, go tell him. Look at his second prophecy, look at verses 34 and 35. Now, uh, I told Sonia, thank you for doing that, here's the bad news, you got to sing it on Wassel Night. Okay, that's not the last time I'm going to hear it. I'm going to hear it at least one more time here. Okay. Um, yeah, pretty cool there. I'm glad I came to church today. And Simeon blessed them and then said to Mary, his mother. Now, you know, we've, we've said, you know, it's tough to build a battleship in the middle of a hurricane. Uh, one thing you find out, Ben, as a pastor, some people sow their wild oats and then they come and want me to pray for a crop failure. You know, and that doesn't always work. But... Uh, Simeon blessed them and said, hey, you guys are right in the center of God's will, and it's going to hurt. It's not going to be easy, Mary. And the fact he addresses this to Mary is more circumstantial evidence, Sue, that Joseph probably dies sometime after Jesus is 12, but before his ministry starts. Because she's going to be at the crucifixion. And to the naked eye, Jesus doesn't look like the God-man dying for Jack Smith's sins. He looks like a pitiful Weak, impotent, uh, maybe victim of circumstances, but he looks like a victim, not like a victor at all. Until he says, tetelestai at the end, until he quotes Psalm 22, which is an Old Testament commentary about the Messiah being crucified, and then then the resurrection, and the Jewish leaders are going, uh-oh, we got to explain this away. Oh, the disciples stole the body. Yeah, we'll just say that, you know. It's amazing. Some people aren't going to believe no matter what you do to them or for them. <laughs> Look at verse 34 and 35 again. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, not to Joseph, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. I would say he's the exclusive issue and issuer. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides. Right? And for a sign to be opposed. Uh, the Old Testament says God's Prophets and the ultimate prophet, the Christ, are going to be opposed by most. So we've always been a misunderstood, persecuted minority group. Okay, Connie? Even to this day, if you let the religious study scholars who are sociologists that look at religion, they're not theologians, they're going to tell you there's 2.1 billion Christians in the world out of uh, 7.6 billion, which is uh, less than a third so even today, with all the visible structures, and a lot of those people may not be born again at all, but we're still a persecuted minority group. And we're by far the group that gets the most persecution, but that doesn't count. Okay? Does anybody use the word Christ as a cuss word all day long? Do you ever hear anybody use Muhammad, Islam, the Quran as a cuss word? They don't, the elites don't do that for two reasons. They're, they're, they've got too much virtue to insult any religion but Christianity. And number two, if you were to use Muhammad's name in vain, there's a real chance. There's a real chance something, in a, in a time frame you can understand, like this afternoon, something really bad and painful would happen to you and probably most of your loved ones. So it's interesting. People like to use Jesus' name to cuss, but they, they never use Muhammad's name to cuss. But that's a religion that believes in coercion. Personally, I'm a pastor committed the proposition that voluntary association, so you do the right thing for the right reason instead of me coercing you, is very important. We are a church, not a cult. We don't make you come. We don't make you stay. But we'd like you to come on time if possible, according to Dale. So, 
Just so you know. You lose points with him if you're not on time. I'd rather you come late than not at all. Just just keep coming, you know. But yeah, he's looking at Mary, and, and so she's right in the center of God's will here, right? But he says, look, um, verse 35, a sword will pierce even your own soul. Not literally. Talking about deep emotional pain. She and, and she understood this. I mean, you got a baby wrapped up like a dead man the day he's born. She knows enough about the prophecies and knows she's, he's going to die for sins. So he's just letting you know it's not going to be easy. The idea that if you're in the center of God's will, it's always easy and fun is not biblical. It may may sell. People may like to hear that on Sunday mornings, but it's not true. All right? And eventually you're going to have a problem when the bad stuff happens because it's coming. You know, sword will pierce even your soul to the end that. Thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You know, how can you react to the real meaning of the crucifixion as opposed to just the superficial, visible meaning of it, that kind of thing. Okay, that's the first prophetic word that Jesus is the Christ. Now let's look at the second prophetic word. When Jesus is only 40 days old here, people, that's it. In Jerusalem, of all places, right? Look at verse 36 and verse 37. Let's look at... uh, the prophetess Anna introduced. I'm looking forward to meeting Anna. I've always liked that name for some reason. I think I like Sonia more. Just saying, so um, uh, remember uh, uh, Elizabeth's daughter in Puebla. Remember what her name is? Anna, right? So I know that's my the Anna I think about. Uh, there was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. And then as a widow, nothing bad ever happens to good people, right? It happens all the time, you know. Uh, when you really get bumped out about that, and I, I regularly still get bumped out about that, read Psalm 73. It explains it in one chapter. Uh, the really bad thing is not just that bad things seem to happen to good people, but what really Psalm 73 is about is quite often really good things seem to happen to bad people. Under the sun. But there's a limit, right? So she's had, she's been a widow for a long time. Uh, she was married for seven years, her husband died, and then as a widow to the age, she's now 84 years old. But she never left the temple, meaning the temple region, somewhere there in the temple area, right around the plat, on the platform somewhere, serving day and night with fastings and prayer. Okay? Uh, that's all we really know about her except the next verse, what she's gonna say in praise and witness, but, She'll be a very interesting person to talk to. And this is the kind of person Luke includes in his gospel that the other ones don't because he tells you in the first four verses, I've done a lot of checking, okay? I've read Matthew and Mark, but I've also talked to other eyewitnesses and people who knew the eyewitnesses. And Anna's probably dead before Luke gets to talk to her, but he probably tracked down uh, friends of hers or whatever. Maybe she had some children. She was married for seven years who could have told Luke about her. But, uh, yeah, she's another prophetic voice here. And look what we're told here, verse 38. At that very moment, she came up in the aftermath of Simeon holding the Christ and began giving thanks to God, continuing to speak of him, as a capital H, of Christ, to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. Now look at this. See those circled passages? These are Old Testament believers who've been looking Faith in the promised Savior, and now they've seen him. 
consolation, the one who's going to bring salvation, the one look, there were really people, and not, people didn't believe that. That's just too, that's too, too neat of a diagram. They were all confused. They were real fuzzy. No, they weren't. You know, Luke starts you with this premise that there are prophets and there are people that are in Jerusalem anticipating the Messiah is going to be here very soon. And then they see him and they tell you who he is. So, you know, how do Old Testament people get saved? By keeping the Old Testament law? No. By the works of the law, no flesh should be justified in God's sight. But through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. And the righteousness of God by faith in Christ, all who believe, for there's no distinction. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely as a gift to redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. You know, is that any good? I guess so. So it's all about the Lamb coming, and these are folks on this side of the cross who have already been believers, and now their their faith becomes sight, and it's a glorious, beautiful thing. Don't take that for granted. And as Homer prayed at the rapture event, we're going to see him, if not before, right? Take this to heart. What does the word of God tell us that's any good in Luke 2, 22-38? Well, among a lot of other things, the fact that Jesus is the Christ was confirmed by two prophets, a man and a woman, at the very epicenter of where the Old Testament was supposed to be working, at the temple complex, while Jesus was only 40 days old. Okay, Now let's look at some primary data on how important knowing Jesus is the Christ is. We've already referred to these. Look at 1 John, not the Gospel of John. But toward the back of the Bible, not quite all the way, but toward the back, you got first, second, and third John. Or as the president would say, one John, two John, and three John. That's okay. If you want to say it that way, it's okay with me. Here, read this. Okay, as first as one Corinthians says. <laughs> uh, next time tell me how to say it, you. You know. I I'm not a prophet, but I guarantee you that happened. Fire him, you know. You're fired. Okay, First John 5, 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, that, that's his last name, right? Now, what is the Christ? The one anointed by God to live a perfect righteous life, to die as our substitute, to pay our debt on the cross, and rise again from the dead. Did anybody else do anything like that? So, of course, Jesus is the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, right? And it goes on, but uh, who's the one who overcomes the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? The world wants you to believe anything but that. Believe a lot of nice things about him, or believe anything you want to about him. Use his name to punctuate your sentences if you need to or want to. Don't use Muhammad's name, because that could be a problem. But the world wants you to believe anything but that Jesus is the exclusive issue of eternal life. But that's what the Christ means, okay? Look at... I love these key statements. Look at John 20, the Gospel of John. So we're going back to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Verse 20, uh, chapter 21, the last chapter of John, is an epilogue. It's kind of a real organized conclusion. But the body of the book ends with the last couple of verses of John 20. So turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, or on your phone, or whatever it is. Hopefully many of you have it tattooed on your hand. Verse 30 and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed. I'm not telling you everything I could tell you about Jesus. Not in this book, but these are written that you might believe Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the promised Savior, and he died for your sins and rose again. And by active, receptive trust in him, you can have everlasting life. No one else can do that for you. Um, bottom line, in John chapter 1, let's go there. Gospel of John chapter 1, look at verse 9. We're told that 
Jesus gives light. That is, he enlightens everyone who comes into the world. The problem is not a lack of information. With your head, it's a problem of your heart. People don't respond. God will get the information to people if they're going to respond. Naturally or supernaturally if necessary. Look at Gospel of John 1.9. He was the true light. Who's the he? The word of God, the light of men, the the life, uh, the one, uh, verse 7, that all must believe in for everlasting life. That was the true light which coming to the world enlightens everyone. That word man is anthropos, anthropology means people, not adult males. And yet, most people don't want it. He was in the world for 33 years. And the world was made through him, and the world by and large didn't know him, didn't want him. He came into his own, the Jews, and the vast majority of them, including the leadership, with very few exceptions, they didn't receive him. But as many, to each individual, and you're always going to be a, a minority group in Christianity, uh, to them he gave the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name. Here's, uh, whoop. let's go there. Bottom line, Jesus gives light. Jesus is the Christ. He's the issue of everlasting life. You want it, you can have it. The problem isn't your head, it's your heart. It's not a lack of information, it's a lack of transformation. It's not outside in, it's inside out. So I'm going to say, if you've never received Jesus Christ as Savior, you can do it right now, okay? Um, if you've never, from the depth of your heart, embraced Jesus alone for salvation as the Christ, do it. Like the leper did. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. What does Jesus say? Of course I'm willing. Be cleansed. Be terrorists on the cross. It wasn't a thief. The Romans didn't crucify thieves. They crucified terrorists. He probably stole stuff too. But what is the guy on the cross who's broken all the Ten Commandments multiple times, sometimes on the same day? How does he get saved? Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. What's that? That's active receptive trust. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. You can and I want you to. That's what he's saying. That's what saving faith is. You recognize your need, your, your guilt, your inability to save yourself, and you just throw yourself in the mercy of Jesus. You say, hey, I'm a sinner. Can't fix it. You can. You died for me and rose again. I want you to. As soon as the heart kicks in, um, you're given the gift of eternal life, right? Now, for most of us here who have trusted Christ, uh, I would say to you, in light of the truth, Jesus is the Christ. That's important for you too. You ought to be able to defend it. You ought to know in some detail what it means. And you certainly should not use it to punch away your senses. But for those of us who are believers, I would say to you what Paul says in the key statement of his uh, epistle to the Colossians. As you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Okay, you believed. Now live like you do believe. You've been firmly rooted, and now you're being built up and established in the faith. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's the exclusive issue and the exclusive issue of eternal life. Baptists who trust Christ are saved. Lutherans who trust Jesus Christ are saved. Muslims who trust in Jesus Christ are saved. They're not Muslims anymore, by the way. They're Christians now, right? Um, nobody's so bad they can't have it. Samaritan woman. Nobody's so good they don't need it. That's the gospel. That's what we ought to be reacting to, trusting in him if we haven't, uh, thinking and living consistently with that if we have. So let's have a word of prayer.
Father, I do pray that you've been glorified as believers with teachable hearts have sat under the teaching of your word this this morning. The first significant thing we were doing as believers on the Lord's Day as you give us a brand new week is to gather for worship and for prayer and for fellowship and to be in and under the word together. And I pray that the product of that process would be, uh, for all of us, a greater ability to read this passage and understand it, a greater level of divine viewpoint discernment, in our categories, the way we think about ourselves, you, and everything else, and as a real strong motivator for us to live out the implications of your word, whether we're 10 years old or 110 years old. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.